this month we are talking about the Hulu original series The Handmaid's Tale, uh, based on the novel by Margaret Atwood. And my guest is Jamie Chilastri, a comedian and Margaret Atwood apologist. Thank you for being here. You are welcome. I am excited to have some hot takes, maybe. <laughs> or like lukewarm takes. I don't know. <laughs> we're, we're, we'll see. Um, so I like to start by going over sort of like the chronology of the order that we watched and read things in, um, just so we can be like aware of how that affected our experience. Um, so for me, I watched the show when it first aired, and then I read the book recently um, after deciding to do an episode on it for the podcast, and then after I read the book, I rewatched season one. Um, what about you? Did you read the book first? So I read the book for the first time in like 2015 or so. Um, okay. Definitely read it once again since then at an unknown time. I think around when the show first came out. Have been watching the show live when it started. Um, up until I'm s- still watching this goddamn show that... <laughs> oh yeah, I should say, I meant to say, uh, spoilers for the whole show. We're going to be focused on season one, but we might bring up other stuff, so just be prepared for spoilers uh, for anything that might happen. Yeah, like, I'll just say Milk Train. I'm going to talk about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I watched the show when it came out. I'm still watching it for reasons unknown to me. Um, and then for the podcast, I started reading the book. And then kind of watch, then started watching the show and like read them both and watched them like in tandem. Oh, okay, interesting. So, and I just wrapped up the book like literally last night. Nice. Um, so, when you first watched the show, having already read the book, which is not something I experienced, um, what were some things that jumped out to you as either uh, something you thought was a good change or a weird change just like the most what was the most noticeable stuff so the most noticeable to me was how much the the book like lives so much in unknowns and the show gives Mm. us so much backstory that i think kind of like ruined the vibes um Mm. Something I remember thinking is that the show hit a lot of the correct plot points. Like, many of the things happen in the first season of the show almost beat for beat happen in the book. But the vibes are so different. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And something I really noticed watching it this time is that there's a lot of stuff that happens in the book that was, like, hearsay that Offred would repeat to mm. us and, like, retell other people's stories or rumors that she heard. And then in the show, just everything happens to her. <laughs> Which is a, a very, very bizarre choice. Like, this, the book has a much more kind of nuanced take of, like, these are some people that kind of sat aside and watched while fascism happened to other people where the show was very much like one day these weird religious nut jobs took over and they were like, our first priority mm-hmm. is making this one specific white woman very sad. <laughs> yeah. The um, you're right. The book has so much more ambiguity and like part of the, 
part of what makes it so interesting is like just she has just no idea what the truth is and her like whole world is like conversations with like three or four people who can't really say what they want to say and she's like deciphering that stuff and yeah when you watch the show it is very like pretty much always clear what is actually happening and what the truth is which is a very different experience right and like in the book there's so much of just like like you were saying like ambiguity and like she doesn't know really who to trust or what's going on and also like who's real where um so what is her name of somebody i should have written all of these down oh no in the show, Alexis Bledel character, not of Warren. I think it's of Glenn. Off Glenn, yes. Um, in the book, she's very much like the only person that talks about Mayday. She's the only connection known to Mayday. Where like in the show, it's like she's in Mayday, and then Alma's in Mayday, and then Nick's in Mayday, and then everyone's in Mayday, and everybody's Mayday. <laughs> where. It felt like in the show, it almost was it clear if if Mayday actually existed or if it was something Offlan made up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It does have. I feel like that just happens when like dramas go on long enough because that do, is like similar to like in Pretty Little Liars. Eventually, you're like, I guess everyone is a everyone is and like you're like everyone is Gossip Girl for a while, and in like Handmaid's yeah. Tale, it's uh, everyone's Mayday. Yeah. I think part um, of it, too, is that yeah. they, like, get rid of Offglen after, like, three episodes in the show. Where in the book, she's there until, like, the second to last chapter. Mm, yeah. And, like, for some reason, um, they just replace her with Alma. Um, something else yeah. that I picked up on in the book, too, is, like, they talk about the Handmaid's costumes. And they always mention wearing veils. Which, the first time I read the book, I pictured them almost something more akin to, like, a burqa that would cover your whole face. Mm. Because at some point, she, like, meets Alma, and she's like, yo, my name's Alma, and Alfred's like, I knew an Alma. We were in the Red Center together, and it's like, why would, wouldn't you know if it's <laughs> the same person? <laughs> like, what's happening? Um where, like, it felt like yeah, there was like, more familiarity sense. and, like, community. <laughs> um, in general, uh, were the costumes the same as what you pictured when you read the book? Because I, you know, like I said, I read the book after, so I just basically pictured the show. But I was curious, because, like, reading it, I was like, I feel like I would not understand what the fucking, like, wings on their heads she keeps talking about are if I hadn't watched the show. <laughs> I, like, kind of pictured it that way. I almost pictured it like a cone that you put on a dog after surgery. (laughs) Um, But, like, also in the books, they keep mentioning veils, and, like, there's no veil on the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that's just, like, because they're, like, we want to see the actor's face. Yeah, well, we all know Little Miss Scientology does a lot of face (laughs) acting. She's a big face actor. So we got to see that mug. We got to see her staring at the camera, doing that thing at the end of every episode while girls just want to have fun plays where she's just staring angrily. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, the Offglen plot you mentioned, it does feel like super weirdly rushed. And I think they probably should have had her until like 
the last episode or penultimate episode of season one because like there's a lot of unearned stuff in that plot like in the pilot they start talking and they're like oh it took me so long to know if I could trust you which I was like I kind of like it's hard for me to just believe you just because you're saying that you know like for me it's very abrupt right something else that I feel like wasn't as set up in the show and that always like bothered me really going from like season two on was it became very clear that no one was going to do jack shit about Offred slash June. Um, I feel like we're going to call it the show version June and the book version Offred, just to make it clear. Mm. Um, but in the show, it just felt like June could do literally whatever she wants. And there's like no consequences yes. to her. Where in the book, the stakes are very clear. Like this is her second posting. She hasn't given anybody a child and she has three chances and if she doesn't hit, if she's not able to give somebody a kid after three chances, she goes to the colonies and cleans up toxic waste. Mm-hmm. And, like, that is the rest of her yeah. life. But if she can give somebody a kid, she kind of gets to, like, she doesn't have to go. To, like, her reward is that she just gets to vibe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's so frustrating just sort of, like, how much she can do and how much agency she has, which I think is just like, I like in general, I'm pretty open-minded about adapting stuff, but this, I'm just like, this probably should just be a book and not a TV show because like so much of a TV show is that you have to see people making choices. And I think what was so interesting about the book is like, it really captured like what it is like inside when you have no agency and there's just nothing you can do and what you can do in like a 200 page books that book that's all inner thoughts but not as much right like so much of the handmaid's tale yeah exactly like so much of the handmaid's tale has to live in what offred doesn't know which i think is hard to show but also i feel like a weird thing i want to talk about moira Mm-hmm. because something the show did is they cast Samira Wiley as Moira, who I think is great. I think she's a wonderful actress. I very much enjoy her. But in the books, it always seemed like Moira was like a step ahead of Offred. Um, mm-hmm. Like Offred would make offhanded comments like, oh yeah, well like they declared martial law because there were terrorists and they wanted to get, they wanted to find the terrorists and that's what it was about. And Moira was like, you're a fucking idiot. There were no terrorists. (laughs) Where like in the show, Moira seemed to be learning things at the same time as Alfred, Hmm. which in both Moira's an activist In the show, she's a black lesbian. In the book, her race is not mentioned, but I think she's still a lesbian. Mm. It seems dumb, like, bad writing to me that Moira would be, like, learning things at the same time as Idiot Offred over here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Who, like, thinks martial law is fine as long as it's for national security. (laughs) 
it also like bummed me out. I feel like they took a lot of agency away from Moira. Like in the show, we have that moment where they try to escape the Red Center and like Offred goes as a handmaid and Moira dresses up as a maid. Not as a maid, as an aunt. Um, in the book, Offred's not there. Moira does that on her own. Mm-hmm. Um, Moira also tells her about seeing her mom. Like she sees Offred's mom in like a video of the colonies. Yeah. Um, and in the show, that's Alfred. Um, in the book, Moira's at the Red Center. Or no, in the book, Moira arrives at the Red Center second. In the show, Alfred arrives at the Red Center second. It's just, like, very strange how, like, they took everyone else's story and put it on <laughs> on um, June. It's, like, very, very strange to me. It just very much yeah. seems like there's this one person that they were personally victimizing for no apparent reason. <laughs> Whereas, like, there was so much, like, just vagueness in the book. Like, she was just another woman going through this. She was, like, one in a sea of women. And even in, like, the afterword in the book, they're like, we don't know who this person is. We kind of know who the commander was. We, like, suspect that it was Fred Waterford. We're not sure. Um, and I don't know. I just, like, I, the lack of ambiguity in the show really bums me out. Yeah, it's it feels... Um, I feel like there's less nuance to it with how they, I feel like such a big part of the book was it being like a random girl and like, it's like, she doesn't have to be particularly smart or particularly brave or anything. We're just like living with her being like a human being who's going through this. And the show, it's like, you start to be like, I almost feel like character development is like bad. I don't like want to see her become like the bravest, strongest person, you know? Right, because actually, I feel like in the book, she's expressively not the bravest, strongest person. Yeah, like, I think, I feel like such a big part of it is um, the idea that, like, just surviving and just, like, getting through every day takes an enormous amount of strength, and I feel like there's less power to that when she's actually, like, standing up to ants and, like, doing all this um, more typically brave stuff. Right, and just, like, these are, like, little decisions made by everybody. And also, like, she doesn't stand up to the ants, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, in the in the book? It, yeah, like, not at all, really. Moira yeah, does. Exactly. And, um, freaking Rory Gilmore does. I'm always, never gonna remember her name. Um, <laughs> but, like... Even something I feel like I forgot about in the book is when Rory Gilmore gets, like, hauled off or whatever. I'm just going to call her Rory Gilmore. I forget her name. Um, Of somebody. And we just described this, and I'm, like, already past it. My brain is mush. (laughs) Um, It's Alfred's fault. (laughs) Alfred yells at her, like, during the reaping, and is like, what are you doing? And, like, that's how, like, they kind of get found out that she's Mayday. Like, Alfred's not a hero. She kind of 
in many ways kind of sucks. Right. She, like, talks about how, like, she didn't go to any of the protests when they first started. She talks about how when things first started changing from America to Gilead, she just kind of, like, was like, okay, this is happening. Um, when they took away the women's bank account, she was like, oh, well, Luke's going to take care of me. It's fine. Yeah, one thing I really like about Alfred in the book is that uh, her mom was a feminist and so much of her beliefs like come from that sort of like natural uh, backlash you have to just like whatever your parents are into. Who's <laughs> like, this is like too real that you'll like believe shitty things just because you're like, oh, shut up about feminism. <laughs> right, because she was like, my mom was so embarrassing. She used to go to marches and burn bras. And Moira was like, your mom is so hot. I can't deal with how hot your mom is. Yeah. And I love that for Moira. I would like, I wish we got to know more about Moira, mm. but also like in and the yeah, show, I feel- like, I don't like that. We got to know more what happened to Luke. I don't like to know. We know what happened to Moira. Cause like so much of the fear of that totalitarianism lives in that uncertainty where they like divide people. Mm-hmm. Where, like, yeah. It has a real sort of like, um expanded handmaid's tale universe feeling to it of like we're just getting so much information about this world and that's not necessarily better like it's it's one show but like watching it you're getting so much about everyone you're it just feels like having to sit through like unnecessary prequels and like unnecessary spin-offs yeah like i don't want to know anything about luke that man does not matter to me at all <laughs> Sorry, like, I don't, I don't care about you, Luke. Um, and then there was just, like, also thinking about, like, how she had to go to, like, Jezebel's and get that package of a bunch of letters from Handmaids in the show. This did not, this just straight up didn't happen at all in the book. Um, and then she couldn't get it, and then Moira was able to just send it to the butcher that she goes to every day. Yes! Like, it, <laughs> last few episodes are like way too easy i hate how um like i think there's something interesting to the idea of moira being like you know living in a brothel is a little better for me and like maybe as good as it gets and then like it just feels like june is like you should try to escape and then she just like can easily um i mean i know she had to kill a guy but it's still like oh she can just leave and drive to canada like everything is just too easy yeah, it seemed dumb easy for Moira to get to Canada. She just got in a car and went. <laughs> yeah. It has the vibe of, like, the South Park bit where uh, Eric over Cartman keeps telling Token, like, no, you have a base in your house. Go check. And he, likes to come back and is like, oh, there is a base in my house. And Cartman's like, okay, play the base. And he's like, oh, I guess I can play the base. Like, that's how Moira <laughs> escaping feels. <laughs> Right, like, she's just, like, a superhero for literally no reason. When it seemed like she was, like, an administrative professional for an activist group. I think that was, like, her original thing. Because, like, in the book, she also talks about, like, just, like, knowing people's, like, phone numbers. And it's, like, people they would call for marches, like. Mm. And now, all of a sudden, she's just a badass fighting people. Everyone knows how to shoot a gun. Yes. Yeah, there's, like, no, uh, it just doesn't have enough, like, respect for 
just being like a regular woman getting by, I think. It's just like everyone has to be someone who can kill the commander with their bare hands while you don't own me as playing. It's like, okay. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah, you don't own me was, uh, that was quite a needle drop. What is your favorite? Yeah. I would like to know your favorite Handmaid's Tale needle drop because I have one. Okay, I think mine is. It's maybe when she sees the new off Glen and realizes she's been re- replaced and Don't You Forget About Me starts playing. So I feel like some of the ones in the first season are like pretty forgivable because a lot of times the way I think about it is it feels like songs that that character would be singing to herself because like, oh yeah. I think about, when I think about the song Don't You Forget About Me, I think about the ending of The Breakfast Club where, like, Judd Nelson feels like on top of the world and he's putting his fist up. <laughs> and that's, like, right when she thinks she knows what's going on. Mm. And, like, thinks she's on top of the world and then kind of, like, you get the record scratch of seeing the new off <laughs> But my favorite is the season two premiere when they start playing This Woman's Work by Kate Bush. <laughs> Uh... <laughs> they're about to hang all the handmaids or like pretend to hang them <laughs> and i'm like did they just pick this because it had the na- the word woman in it <laughs> because like you should um... be crying you should be <laughs> yeah and actually you are uh... i don't know why you're saying you should be i did tweet once that the handmaid's tale approach to drama is basically just you'll get to hear a song at the end and the showrunner like immediately like he clearly has like an alert for the title of the show replied with like a passive aggressive lol and i was like i feel like he's gonna murder me (laughs) (laughs) yes i definitely know girls just want to have fun please at some point I think it might be in the most recent season when all of the spare handmaids are hit by a train. Oh my god. Where they just kill off everybody they don't need anymore with a train. (laughs) Another one I really remember is when they refuse to stone of Warren and then I feel good starts playing. Yeah. That's a weird one. It's also very... I'm feeling good? I don't know. Yeah, I'm feeling good by Nina Simone. Um, yeah. That's also brings up like just the vast inconsistencies they have with protecting the life of the handmaids. Because <laughs> like they refused to touch Offred slash June in any way, but they were ready to stone off Warren for basically nothing. <laughs> All she did was not kill a baby. She almost <laughs> killed a baby, and then she didn't. And I think she should get points for that. Yeah, for sure. Every time you don't kill a baby, you should get rewarded. <laughs> yeah. I think that's fair. Um, I also... I love the actress Madeline Brewer, who plays of Warren slash Janine in the show. Mm-hmm. I think she's great. I think she's stuck on The Handmaid's Tale, and I hope she gets freed soon. Because um, I would love to see her. I would love to see her not on the milk train. Um, but I feel like they did the character of Janine really dirty. Yeah. 
like it seems like they just made her like willfully stupid and not like broken in the way she is in the books Mm -hmm. and i don't know maybe i just have like a bad read on that but yeah no i feel like i agree i feel like in the book there was kind of this funny thing where you're like this woman is going through it and like really has problems and then Offred the narrator is kind of like yeah she just sucks which I really enjoy um and then I feel like the show is more like the show is telling you that she sucks right like it felt like Offred was more shitty in the book about Janine yeah. Where the show, because it has, like, this objective eye, is like, no, it's actually Janine. Janine sucks. And it's like, no, Janine has, like, a maladaptive trauma response because she was repeatedly gang-raped. And then had to go through, like, multiple traumatic births. Like, that's what's happening with Janine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or also, um, like, stuff... I think one of the better explanations is, like, in the show... The last time we see Janine in season one, they try to stone her to death. And then all of a sudden, she's just like Aunt Lydia's best friend slash pet. Mm-hmm. Which is like very weird. And I feel like in the book, they give kind of much more of an explanation of like sometimes Aunt Lydia treats Janine with kindness because she's like so beaten down that anybody that gives her any kind of kindness Janine will just like latch on to which is also how we get the story of Moira escaping like we hear that from Janine where the show Janine's just like Moira died I don't know lol look at my eye patch (laughs) um what did you think about the plot with the commander in season one because that was really one that like when I read the book I was like that is really good in a way I like didn't expect based on the show um like the whole plot with him taking her like and playing Scrabble all the time yeah that was that was probably my favorite aspect of the book personally yeah I really like that aspect of the book I think it really shows like This kind of, um, I feel like when the book was written, they didn't quite have the term incel yet. (laughs) But it, I feel like in the book, he has, like, much more of, like, a kind of incel energy. And that he, and kind of both the show and the book is kind of, no one really knows his exact position, but we know that he is high up in the chain of command. He's super important. And I think the book shows him as, like, a much sadder person. Mm-hmm. And how, like, this is also, like, a coping mechanism for his own bullshit. And he's just so incredibly maladaptive. Mm-hmm. And, like, it doesn't make you pity him in any way. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm a Margaret Atwood apologist, because I think she's incredible at writing these kinds of characters where it's like this is where hateful people come from and that doesn't make them worthy of sympathy Mm -hmm. but like there is a cause and effect happening here Mm -hmm. and like how much 
his nonsense is so much more about control, where I think the show, if I remember correctly, shows him more like a true believer. Mm, yeah. Um, in the book, uh, Alfred's relationship with the commander reminded me a lot of in um, Nickel and Dimed when Barbara Ehrenreich is talking about when she was working as a maid and how, like, all the other women were just, like, obsessed with the manager, like, good or bad. It was, like, all they wanted to talk about was the manager. And she was like, I guess, like, they work so hard, like, 10 hours a day, and their only source of any possible commentary on that is from this one guy. Um, and uh, I really like how much of the book was uh, Offred, like, really reading into these small moments and being like, what is going on here? Um, and, like... I really like how um, it almost had this sort of like fantasy Fifty Shades of Grey, Grey aspect where she was like, what's going on here? Like, what are we going to come to arrange? And I really liked when um, when she realized that like he just wants to like put her in a sexy costume and like have sex with her. She's like, no, you can't possibly want something that boring. It has to be something more interesting than that. Because like uh, he was just like, so much like the only interesting thing going on in her life that she had like built up like oh what does he want from me and then it's like oh the thing that guys want okay and it's also i i want to touch because you did describe it as a sexy costume and in the show we get this kind of like flapper gold number like kind of like 1920s inspired almost looks like it could be like maybe a homecoming dress or a bridesmaid's dress but in the show or the book (laughs) if I recall correctly it's like it sounds like something that Taylor Swift said was too tacky to wear on the Eras tour it's like pink and purple feathers (laughs) yeah there's like feathers but it's also all pink and purple and there's like star sequined bodices happening that's something i love about the jezebel sequence in the book is that like there's this weird like joke to it almost about how if like straight guys were in charge of deciding what lingerie survives it would just be insane because there's just like no women or gay guys to be like no, don't save the thing with the purple feathers on it. Like, save this thing. <laughs> I was disappointed we didn't get that aspect from the show. Yeah, even, like, Moira's costume in the show is, like, very much like a Playboy bunny. She has, like, bunny ears. She has, like, a little tail. She has, like, that corset. Very much if you think, like, a classic Playboy bunny look, that's what Moira's got going on. And in the book, it's, like, kind of the same. She has the same tail, but, like, the bodice doesn't fit her. And, like, the ears are, like, a different animal. Yes. Yeah. It's such a good, weird bit where it's, like, you know, the thing about straight men is that it's not actually about what's sexy. It's just about control. And that is played out in this really goofy weird visual way that it's like yeah they don't understand lingerie they just want to put you in a demeaning costume (laughs) right it's like this is we're gonna do something real not sexy here and i'm gonna fuck you while you're dressed like a deer i guess yeah they (laughs) they don't 
don't even understand what type of animal ears is supposed to go with what. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm not an expert in animal-inspired costumes, but I feel like deer is not one of the sexy ones. (laughs) I believe it's, like, cat and bunny, I think, are the only ones that are allowed. Like, imagine (laughs) being like, I'm going to dress like a sexy puppy. But not in a kinky way, in like a Victoria's Secret Fredericks of Hollywood way. Like, no, that's not allowed. That's not like, there's no sexy chickens, but I bet there are Jezebels. Um, what yeah, did that. you think about something that came up at, in like the scene at Jezebels, is how they take like foreign trade delegations there? And I feel like there was a big difference between foreign policy and Gilead in the show versus the book. Mm, Like, in the book, in, like, the first chapter, Offred goes past um, a Japanese tourist group, and they're like, are you happy here? And she's like, yes. Mm. Because, of course, she is. Like, she has to say that. She doesn't know who is a spy. She doesn't know... If she'd be punished for saying anything else, et cetera, et cetera. Where in the book or the show, they make it seem like no other countries want to fuck with Gilead even a little bit. And they're like desperate to open up trade. And then for some reason, the first trade they're going for is human trafficking. That's like (laughs) right off the bat. They're like, we're going to open up trade and we're going to trade women. It's like, all right. Yeah. I mean, It's so much just, like, everything in adapting this that, like, the moment with the tourists, like, staring at them and being like, are you happy, was, like, a great small moment that, of course, has to become, like, a whole plot in the show and um, with her meeting the ambassador from Mexico. And um, I guess it's okay. Obviously, it, like, so much of the stuff in the show is just, like, way too easy where, like, they somehow let june get alone with her and give her a whole big monologue and also just invite some other guy who's like by the way i know your husband he's alive and i can get a weird letter to him if you want yes Uh, it's frustrating that like such a big part of this story should be that she is like never able to express herself which is why they have voiceover but then she also gets a bunch of actual monologues that are not voiceover that you're like oh this girl actually talks about what's going on like a lot with everybody yeah like there's no real secrets here there's Uh, like a scene where she and Avglen are like talking in the car with other handmaids on either side of them and it's like they're whispering but if someone is right next to you and no one else is talking like whispering isn't gonna solve everything right and also again well everyone's mayday so it doesn't matter um yeah (laughs) driver was mayday everybody in that van was mayday like the probably the marthas are all mayday who knows um but I feel like something else, too, just about those, like, foreign trade delegation things is that in the book, it also, like, made it kind of very clear that, like, Gilead held so much economic strength that the rest of the world kind of turned a blind eye to what was happening. Where in the TV show, it's almost 
like they couldn't trust the audience to be like Gilead's the bad guy. <laughs> so instead, they had to be like very heavy-handed and have like everyone else come and be like, "Are you? Are you okay? Are you okay, Alfred? Are you okay?" And then she had to be like, "No, I am not okay." Yeah, I also think like something that is really frustrating that I think sort of makes the sort of politics of the Handmaid's show like sort of incomprehensible is how like it's so divorced from like capitalism and like corporations and stuff uh so like watching the the Christian right in America decide to like simplify their lives and not have any corporate stuff and do what's right for the environment you're just like first off that would never fucking happen and then also it's just like they're voluntarily becoming like you said like not an economic power so um, it just, like, doesn't really make sense and is also just, I think, like, kind of useless as, like, political commentary. Right. Like, I think the book offers so much good political commentary because it also seemed to me, like, in the book, I don't think it's ever explicitly said but very much implied that while Gilead is very much like, we're cleaning the earth, we're making the environment better, it seems like a form of whitewashing their politics. Because, like, yeah, I guess they're making it better, but it's because they're sending all the sluts to pick up trash <laughs> in the colonies. And Offred's mom, who might have been a slut. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's, just, there's like, a lot of stuff with them, like, simple, just, like, simplifying their lives and stuff that you're just, like, I just think, like, coca-cola would not let this happen basically <laughs> like... right um and also i feel like in the book there were like more references of like business people mm. just like at random where in the show it just seemed like everybody worked for the government yeah, they, uh yeah like the you were either a commander more, like... or dead that was it those are your two choices yeah, in the the book, it seems like there's more, like, working class people and, like, business people that they talk about. And then in the show, the the economics are very confusing because it's like you can be, like, a powerful government person or, like, a maid. And there's, like, not a lot of, like, in between. We see, I think, in, like, season three? In one of the later seasons, we definitely see, like, one Akano couple who were, like, this secret Muslim couple. She, like, is hiding out with them and then finds a Quran and, um, I don't know what they're called, the, like, prayer mats hidden under their bed. Which also, like, Offer, don't look under people's beds. That's so rude. Um, (laughs) She's so rude in the show. Um, (laughs) Don't look under people's beds. Uh. I think that's a good rule. Since you brought the phrase Akana couple, one thing that did, like, really jar me in the book was just, like, the sort of um, 1984 style, like, sci-fi phrases. Like, when they're like, I handed over my card to get my number bucks or whatever. Like, that just really surprised me because, like, the vibe of the show is so, like, I guess technically sci-fi dystopia, but it is really, like, this happened... This started, like, a couple weeks ago. Like, Trump got elected, now we're this, and it doesn't feel like... It doesn't have the same, like, sci-fi, other world feel that the book does. 
Right. Like, it feels like in the books, it's like, I think they were called, like, compu cards were like, yes. credit cards. <laughs> Those are, like, the them. only things in the book that I'm like, this that's really corny. You can tell this is an 80s sci-fi book. Yeah, that. you can tell it's very 80s. But then it also gives you kind of this thing where it's like, all right, so they put every single person's money in one place. And then, like the religious right started to rise because like Serena Joy was giving these speeches on TV and it became more accepted and like things kind of started slowly until they took over the government where I might've already said this cause I just can't stop thinking about it. it the show is, seems like normal, 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 normal. Offered goes for a run. Someone calls her a slut. They blow up the white house and then they attack <laughs> all the white women and put them in red costumes and it happens in 24 hours. And it's like, what? Yeah, I feel like it's really, it really wants to give the vibe of like stuff like gradually happening and getting worse, but it just like doesn't pull that off. No, because like, even if you think about kind of how their escape attempt is shown in the show, it's like, they just kind of pack up the car and go. And then they go into the red center and then she comes out and like, it's a whole new world. And I was actually, I was watching the last like four episodes of the season with my partner who has never seen The Handmaid's Tale before. <laughs> and at some point we were like, I think we watched kind of that one of the last episodes where it like shows her get arrested in the woods, go into the thing and then come out. And then the whole world's different. And he was just like, where'd they find time to make all these costumes? She wasn't yeah. in a costume when she got arrested. <laughs> My favorite scene I is when they go into like the coffee shop and suddenly like the, the woman who usually works there is missing. And the guy who's working there now is just like, uh, that guy's just like, I don't know where she, where she is, you dumb slut. Yeah, he's just like, um, your cards declined, slut. And I was just, like, watching, and I was like, what an incredible <laughs> brief moment in this transition where, like, for some reason, bitchy gay guys were, like, on top of the world and running things. I mean, fun fact, that is how I got fired from Starbucks, is I was just like, I'm sorry, <laughs> slut, your cards are <laughs> I think something that I kind of liked that I don't think the show did as well as the book um, is when that happened and then Luke was kind of like, oh, it's fine. Like, I'm going to take care of you. Like, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. In the show, she kind of seemed like, okay. And Moira was like, <laughs> that's fucked up. And like, I think in the book, because we're more in our head, I think we got a little bit more resentment out of that. It's like, oh, he yeah. kind of wants this control too. I like, kind of liked that Luke wasn't... It, well, like, she always, like, loved him and, like, she thinks about him a lot and, like, wonders if he's alive and wonders where he is and has that, like, uncertainty about him. I feel like he's another one that in the show he seems, like, just put up on the pedestal. Like, he's the perfect man. Yeah, yeah I feel like the, the Luke relationship, similar to the Commander relationship in the book, I feel like it just had so much stuff where it felt kind of relatable and felt like you've been in relationships like this and I feel like there was a lot of the stuff in the book that was like this is about relationships and like navigating being like female whatever or whatever um 
And in the show, it's much more like this is about politics and this is about being a woman, like, specifically in terms of politics. Um, and the show, I, or in the book, I felt like had so much stronger, like, interpersonal sort of everyday stuff. Yeah. Like, so in both Alfred and Luke meet kind of by chance, uh, both in, like, different ways. I forget exactly how they meet in the book, but in the show, they, like, meet outside of a food truck. I think it's something similar in the book. They, like, meet at random. Um, and then they start having an affair. And it felt like the show romanticized that a little bit. <laughs> in a way that it's, like, they started having these secret lunches... And then he was like, I'm going to leave my wife. Mm. Where it felt like in the book, it seemed like he was jerking both Alfred and his current wife around a little bit more. It felt like more time passed between their, like, meet cute and him actually leaving his wife. Mm. And that there was, like, a pretty long period that he was, like, Kind of leading Alfred on a little bit, and also probably leading his wife on a little bit. Where, like, in the show it just seemed like, no, like, he is a good man, and he fell in love with someone else, and he left his wife. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't think that's how that <laughs> happened. <laughs> yeah, the, the show is a little bit like, we don't have to worry about it, no one is in trouble at all. I also, I'm trying to remember because I don't think I, like, clocked it when I was watching the show again. Did they bring up that Alfred was a handmaid because she was an adulterer? Um, oh, I don't remember. Because in the book, it's very explicit that she is in this position because she was an adulterer. Yeah, I feel like on the show, the vibe I got was that just, like, every fertile woman, unless you're, like, married to a powerful man, was a handmaid. Right, where, like, I think in the book it was, like, more clear that it was more of a punishment for, like, sinful mm -hmm. but fertile women. Um, otherwise she would have been, like, doled out to an Akano husband. Mm -hmm. um, because I also remember when they were escaping in the books, like, they had to get special passports that listed that he had never been divorced. Oh, uh, yeah. Because that was, like, a whole thing. That was... That's part of their deal. They hate divorce. Mm -hmm. It also, like, even with as much as they focus on politics, I felt like in the books, their politics and their religious stuff was more clear. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, in the show, it was like, I guess they pretend to love Jesus so they could just be fucking psychos about everything. Where, like, in the books, it was, like, no, like, they, like, exiled all the Jewish people first. Like, that was, mm -hmm. I think she even talks about how that happened, like, before women started to lose their rights. It's, like, they were sending boatloads of people to Israel. Because mm -hmm. uh, they were given a choice. And, like, they were hanging Catholics. And, like, Quakers were a big part of the book. Like... As much as I will defend many of Margaret Atwood's writing choices, I hated that she used the phrase underground female road. That was <laughs> not her best. Nice try, Marge. Um, 
Yeah, um, in the show, I feel like they don't really... They spend a lot of time on the right-wing characters, but I feel like they don't really understand the right-wing, and they give them no. too much, like... I feel like they give them too much, like, actual logic, where you're just like, oh, okay, there is a fertility crisis, and, like, even though it's horrible, like, you can see why this is the path to having a population. Whereas, I feel like with the actual right wing, it's just like, they're just doing stuff because they're bad and hateful, and I felt like they didn't, uh, they didn't need to have, like, so much logic of, like, this is actually the best way for us to like grow the population and get through this crisis. Like, I feel like yeah. they didn't understand. It doesn't fully like appreciate the like irrationality that the Christian right had. No, there was like not as much blind faith um, that I feel like the actual Christian right has, where they're just like, gay people should die because they're icky. And it's like, what? Mm-hmm. Um, where in the show, or. What's I gonna say in the books or no in the show? Thinking about like the Nick backstory episode, which I also didn't need. Um, yeah, he's like such a nothing character, and the show makes him into so much. And it's like this man was a blank slate. Like the show like <laughs> gives him. They're like this is a love story between Alfred and Nick. And in the books, Alfred's like I talk to Nick all the time, and he doesn't say anything back to me ever. <laughs> um. But in his, like, backstory episode, there's, like, a scene where he's driving Commander Waterford and some other old people, old guys, around other old commanders. And they're, like, you know, we can fuck other women as long as we put them in our wives' laps. And they're, like, okay. <laughs> it's, like, okay, so, like, I don't know if we needed this. This was weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did you think about the difference... First of all, let me ask, have you read the Testaments? No. I feel like you need to read the Testaments and we need to do this again because it's okay, cool. a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale and it definitely pulls okay. some stuff from later seasons of this show. It's really weird. Oh, did it come out recently? Yeah. Oh, okay. It came out since the show it. started airing. Weird. But I was thinking about it. Because I was thinking about the differences between Aunt Lydia in the show and the books. And I almost wonder if this is just because they had Aunt Dowd. And they were like, we need to put Aunt Dowd in every episode. And I was like, I agree. Aunt Dowd (laughs) should be in every episode of most shows. I think every show would be improved by Aunt Dowd being present. But in, like, the show, she's like this ever-present specter. And then in the book, she's, like, at the Red Center, and she's kind of the main Red Center lady. But then they go to the, what's it called? The Not the Reaping, that's from The Hunger Games. Um, where they, they stone the people and watch them get hanged, whatever mm-hmm. that is. Yeah. And Alfred says in the book, like, oh, I haven't seen Aunt Lydia in years. I just feel like that was a weird change to make where it's like, no, you have this assigned psycho lady who's just going to ruin your life at any given moment. I do absolutely love the vibe of the ants. Like, I love that there was someone who was, that there's like a class of woman that was like, actually, don't make me a slave because I'm just really good at being like a bitch. So I can actually just like control people and like be in charge. It'll be great. I'm such a bitch. This is going to be awesome. I'm just like, full respect Aunt Lydia. 
I just feel like if we end up in a Gilead situation, <laughs> um, and I'm forced to detransition, I think I would be a great aunt. I would. Yeah. They would be like, "You're an unwoman," and I'd be like, "No, no, no." <laughs> make me an ant i'll be so good at it i'm so mean yeah. i could do this thing where i just look at somebody and i figure out their weakness like immediately yeah they've got it all figured out yeah i could i could so be an ant it would be so fun <laughs> you'd be a cattle prod yes yeah but like the it's also weird because in the testaments it like gives the backstory of like how aunt lydia became an ant Oh, okay. Which is kind of interesting. Especially because she starts out as, like, a liberal judge. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they're like, well, you could die or you could do this. And she's like, well, vote blue no matter who. <laughs> and then ends up an amp. Wow. So I feel like that, I don't know. The, just the presence of the ants is super interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're interesting. Um, do you know anything about sort of like the political context of the books, of the book? Because I, reading it, there were like certain stuff that was like odd to me until like being like, oh, I guess there's like very specific stuff happening with feminism in the 80s that this is like responding to. Um that I think is, like, interesting, but, like, also now, um, I don't know, just, like, feels surprising. So, it was definitely written under Reagan. Mm -hmm. And also, Margaret Atwood wrote it while living in, I always forget, East or West, West Germany, before the Berlin Wall fell. So, she was also kind of witnessing the totalitarianism happening in East East okay. Germany at the time. As my cat just knocked over a bunch of stuff. Um, so there's like a little bit in response to that. And I think also specifically looking at like the Reagan administration, which if you follow American politics at, at all, you kind of know where that, that's where this all went to hell. <laughs> uh, that's... <laughs> where our downward spiral started. Um, and what Margaret Atwood did is, like, everything that happens to the Handmaids and to other groups by Gilead has historical precedent. It has happened somewhere in the world, but not necessarily to Western women. So her kind of, like, mission was to apply these things to Western women and, like, make Western women actually see themselves in it, which I think is a noble goal that has yielded some of the worst kinds of feminism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the, um, the book feels like it's responding to such sort of, like, specific things and really, like, engaging and the show felt more like they thought Trump was going to lose and that watching The Handmaid's Tale would be sort of a, like, cathartic, like, that's nice. Like, we got Hillary instead experience. 
um, yeah. for people. Like, it very much feels like the the balloons dropping on Hillary's party of TV shows. It does. I, like, watching it, I was like, this reeks of 2016. Um, yes. Just absolutely. It's so weird that it has lasted forever because it's from such a specific moment. But I guess not to the extreme of, like, American Dad, which is very specifically about Bush and is still on the air. Right. It's like... I think it's like really interesting because something I was thinking a lot about while kind of reading and watching this in tandem was the constant terrible, terrible argument that the internet's always having of like, well, does this serve the plot? Because <laughs> I like tweeted about this the other day. Mm-hmm. And I said it like right when we started. The show hits so many p- plot points of the book, mm-hmm. but the vibes are so incredibly off. Like, the context isn't right, the themes aren't right, the, like, setting's not right. Um, Yeah, this is such a, like, I feel like this is so emblematic of, like, when people use prestige TV in, like, the bad way, because it is this, like, weird thing where, like, in a lot of ways the execution is good. I'm, like, they are technically hitting the right plot points. There's, like, the acting is good, and the production design, the costumes or whatever. And there's just, like, something where you're like, but it doesn't matter. It's not... The elements are there, and it just doesn't really make it a good show. Yeah. And, like, all of the performances are really good, too. Like, mm-hmm. I think all the actors are yeah. really good. Um, who knew Alexis Bledel could do that? good for her she won an emmy i can't believe she i like was thinking i was watching this i was like oh my god i can't believe she's the only like regular cast member of gilmore girls that has an emmy that's insane and then i remember he has one oh yeah that makes sense (laughs) um but it just like it does i feel like it was almost designed to Scare heterosexual white women. Yeah. There's, like, I feel like season one, like, only works because Trump did win and, like, we all watched it when we were insane. Like, I, like, looking back, I'm, like, you know, when the cops start, like, shooting on the march, like, that's not really, like, a good scene, but it did come out at the right time for you to be, like, oh, my God. Um, And it's just, like, I feel like coming out exactly at a point where uh, everyone was with good cause, fully insane, like both helped and hurt it. It's just like always going to be extremely tied to those few months. Right. And also, I feel like something I need to point out, because I think this is a big point of the Handmaid's Tale book, is that the people who became handmaids were people who were lulled into complacency while everyone else got slaughtered. Because there was, like, protests getting mowed down by machine guns. Did happen in the book. Offred was not there. She, like, specifically said she never went to a march. Um, So it was people who were probably more radical than her, more of the fringes of society than her, more ostracized or, um, what's the word I'm looking for? More marginalized than her Mm. that like were taking these direct actions for survival. And then 
she just thought she was safe. Like, she thought she was fine. She thought everything was under control because she's always been part of this privileged class who, like, is able to do things like kind of, like, look down on her mom for being embarrassing and going to too many protests. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was, like, something to me that was really interesting about The Handmaid's Tale. Is that, like... It's a warning for people that were lulled into a sense of complacency. Yeah, it has... The book, I think, has a certain amount of... uh, Like, has a lot of awareness about those kinds of things. And then, now it's just, like the vibe of Handmaid's Tale is so associated with, like, this certain type of resist lib. And it, uh, it was just, it's unfortunate. Like, reading the book, I was like, this this made actual points and was sort of, like, very aware of, like, what resistance lib women are like and not really yep. an endorsement. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, not an endorsement of resistance lib women. Um, and especially, I don't know if you remember... 2016 but i was i was still a woman that was still happening to me mm-hmm. um and i feel like i knew so many people who are just like well we're just gonna become handmaids and i'm like <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> do you know how much other shit bad shit has to happen because like <laughs> a question for you because this is what was always in my head but what I was surprised that it wasn't explicitly stated when I reread the book. Do you think there were any handmaids that weren't white? I don't think so. Like, I felt like, I just feel like those sort of, like, white wing people would, like, not want a black white child. Babies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, it was really frustrating that, like, the show doesn't acknowledge that. Like, I get that they're, like, desperate for kids, but again, I think, like, that's part of the, like, irrationality of the Christian right that they would still be like, no, like, I don't want that, you know? Yeah, I also think there was part of it that they didn't want to have an all-white cast and that... Right, yeah. I think that was also, like, definitely part of it, but I think, kind of like what I was talking about with Moira, like, it's genuinely weird to me that, like, somebody who lives more in the margins like the tv version of moira would just be kind of on the same page as offered and be like yeah, yeah they don't it, yeah there's so like little acknowledgement of those differences like when they're like at that scene with the march like moira is equally like whoa they're just gunned down the protesters and it's like you're like a politically active black lesbian like this is yeah, very like, strange a, <laughs> so something i would kind of when did tinder come out Oh, I don't know. I want, because the reason I asked was, did, what happened first, Ferguson or Tinder? Because they beat Luke when Alfred June is scrolling Tinder. And oh, Moira's yeah. like, look at her picture. Like, would you swipe right? Like, what do you think of this profile? Like, that's how they meet. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if the show is canonically in a post-Ferguson world. Yeah, I'm not sure. It, because, like, in that point, there's no way that Moira would be like, this is surprising to me. They're yeah, doing it's... bad things. <laughs> it's super weird. Um, we can start wrapping up soon. Um, were there any differences or just, like, thoughts about the, sh- uh, the show or the book that you definitely wanted to get in? 
Um, and I can't think of too many other differences. Uh, I feel like there was, like, a big shift in Serena Joy's character, but, like... Yeah, I feel like she was sort of inspired by maybe, like, either Tammy Faye Baker or, like, Phyllis Shafley. And then in the show, she's a lot more like Ivanka Trump or, like, Meghan McCain or someone like that. Yeah, I feel like she's absolutely supposed to be, like, Ivanka Trump or um, Melania, even. Oh, yeah. Um... Definitely one of the Trump women, especially, like, aesthetically. Mm-hmm. They also kind of girl bossified her in the show. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, why is she girl bossing? Oh, no, I think I lost you for a second. Am I back? Oh, yeah, you're back now. Okay, cool. <laughs> but the other thing I just wanted to know... Have you, like, watched through the current season of The Handmaid's Tale? No. I know I watched um, last year, because that was when I tweeted that out about the music. Um, but I'm not sure where I left I think that sure was the last season. Off. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't think I finished it. Did, did you see the milk train? <laughs> I don't think I... I don't think so. Okay, so there's a moment in the most... Re- I just... I have to talk about it, because it's the most insane thing I've ever <laughs> seen on television. There's a moment where June and Madeline Brewer's character, Janine, are, they're, like, trying to get to Chicago or something, and they're trying to, like, hitch a van, hitch a ride on this train that they, like, get on top of, because so, they're all superheroes now. And it's right, the same yeah. train that hit all the spare handmaids. It's, like, a different train. Um, and at some point, they, like, jump in the top of, like, a boxcar, and when they get in, it's just filled with milk. Not, like, bottles of milk or any other sane way to transfer milk. They jump in and are just swimming. Oh, my God. Full of milk. And I think about it constantly. I'm just like, of all the other insane things happening on this show, they were like, we got to put them in a milk train. They there gotta... was so much deregulation that milk doesn't have to travel in containers anymore. Which is also weird because you think in a totalitarian regime they would be um, all about regulation. <laughs> Wasn't that part of it that like only they have like the good food and like only Gilead is growing oh, food yeah. because of the cleanup sluts? Yeah. But no, they just that's how they tra- I just I think it's important <laughs> for anyone listening to this. Did to know. it? That in Gilead, like, that's how they transport milk. Did it look like they, the car would be keeping the milk cold? Maybe it had a vibe okay. of like a box, like if a box car and an oil tanker had a baby. Okay. <laughs> it was just I don't. I I can't explain it. It does not make sense. <laughs> But I just, I think everyone needs to know that, that on The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, for canonically, sure. Canonically, <laughs> they transport milk by just throwing it in an empty train car. <laughs> That's how that works. I guess every store just, like, has to have cartons 
that they bring to the train. And they just dump it in. Do they, like, milk the cow directly into the train? (laughs) It brings up far more questions than it answers. Yeah. They're also always talking about, like, in the book especially, they're talking about, like, food shortages a lot. Mm. How, like, they can't always get things that are, like, used to be readily available. Um, Like, beef. For example, they always talk about beef is really hard to get. They can normally only get chicken if they can get meat at all. Where'd they get all that milk? <laughs> That's a lot of milk. Yeah, it really is. I think that's, that's my last thing I just, I needed <laughs> to talk about. Yes, I'm so glad you shared that. Um, all right, let's. Let's give them a rating. Um, for now, I'm going to give the book a three out of five. I, I definitely want to revisit it because I feel like there's like a lot there. Um, it's a pretty dense read. Um, so I'll, pro- I'll probably revisit it. But for now, I'd give it like a solid three. Like I thought that w- it was enjoyable and, and thought provoking. Uh, I will give i'm gonna give the book a five out of five i'm not gonna lie that's like it's one of my all-time favorite books um i love margaret atwood's writing style a lot i think something that sets the first season apart from the rest is a lot of offred's voiceovers and like thoughts are direct from the book and you kind of get Mm. that like really beautiful prose that margaret atwood writes and then after that her thoughts get (laughs) weird and dumb yeah um all right i'm gonna give this show a two it is like this thing where it's like it's not the worst show i've watched there's a lot of things about the execution that are good but watching it i'm just like i don't want to bother i'll never feel like watching the handmaid's tale i think i would get the first season of the show which is the adapted version and I think it should have just ended after the first season. Like, if it ended after yeah. the first season, I would still say it was a solid show. Um, first season, three out of five. But it quickly goes to, like, a 1.5 <laughs> out of five. Like, yeah, I mean, it quick. has, like, the, the like, Game of Thrones syndrome where they don't want know what to do when they run out of books, except it's based on a 200 pa- one 200-page book. So. Yeah. Like, you really, you should have just stopped. Like, it has yeah. an ending, and that ending is, like... It's so crazy, because we really, like, live in the age of, like, miniseries, and most shows are too short. It's crazy that The Handmaid's Tale is the show that's getting, like, fucking seven seasons. Yeah, it doesn't need it. <laughs> because, again, going back to just, like, this show should live in the unknown, I never want to know where she goes after she gets in that van. And I think yes. the second that she steps out in the second season and they just pretend to hang them, but there's no actual consequence except for the fact that Alma pees herself, <laughs> is uh, where the show goes to shit. Because that's where yeah. all of the characters learn there's never going to be a single consequence for their actions. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, all right, so I'd like to end on a recommendation. Um, and since we both liked the book better, we'll be recommending shows um, so I'm going to recommend Severance, which is also a 
sci-fi dystopia with a lot of commentary about the current world that I think uh, the commentary is more substantial and interesting and it does a better job at really capturing being in like a pretty helpless situation where you can't really do anything um, Mm -hmm. and just have to get by. Um, Do you you have a recommendation for a a show for fans of the book? Um, I think I would recommend... I'd actually recommend a movie that's coming to HBO soon called All the Beauty Ooh, and the okay. Bloodshed, uh, which is actually a documentary about Nan Golden, who's like a famous photographer, and her protests against the Sackler family, but it kind of goes into capitalism taking over the art world, and I think there's just like this common theme of like... Again, like very dire situations and also how powerful people can whitewash their legacy using charitable acts like art or religion. Cool. All right. Do you have any anything you want to plug? You can plug your Twitter or whatever you want. Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. I tweet a lot about TV, and I'm getting surgery in a few days, so I'll be just tweeting high off my ass on... <laughs> Speaking of the Sackler family, they prescribe me oxys, so I'll just be going crazy. Um, nice. But my Twitter handle is Jamie, J-A-I-M-E, so chic. Jamie spelled like Jamie Lannister. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Lenny Burnham, and you can also look up my other podcast, House of House, uh, if you want to listen to a, an episode-by-episode episode rewatch of House. Thank you for joining me, Jamie. It's so great. Yeah, this was awesome. And thank you, everybody, for listening.